0: Well, good morning, everyone. Come in. It's cool, as they say, isn't it? Yeah. I'll try to speak up a little bit here. I was asking folks in the back row if they could hear me. I was in a meeting here Wednesday night, and I was sitting over there where Jim Steppenbach was sitting, and I had a hard time hearing because of that air conditioning, but the speaker had a very weak kind of voice. So I'm going to try to project a little more here today. So everybody can hear me back there, but maybe maybe you didn't want to. It was better. (laughs) Yeah. All right, let's look at our quiz for today. Our salvation is something we must work at. That's what? No. it's a trick work question. We, work at at oh <laughs> we don't work. Yeah, at. Paul says work out, doesn't he? Because work, work at sounds like sounds like you have to justify yourself, or you have to do something in order to be initially saved. You know. So Paul says we have to work out our salvation. He's talking about mainly our sanctification, <clears throat> our spiritual growth. We don't work uh, to be justified. <laughs> know that's very clear Paul has very strong admonitions and we'll talk about that a little bit today because we get to the Judaizers in chapter 3 and that's what comes up with them working works righteousness as far as salvation so we are involved we do participate in our sanctification our spiritual growth and so forth We don't do that in our justification, our regeneration, our election, most of the aspects. Those are monergistic, remember, most of the aspects of salvation. There's only one force, one worker, and that's God. Two, justification can be described as synergistic. Uh, I just answered that one, didn't I? False. No, it can't be described. There's a question whether you can describe... Uh, you know, sanctification as synergistic. Remember I said R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, he used that term. Some theologians don't like it. They like to just say we participate. Synergistic sounds like they're equal forces. But as we'll see today, we work because God works in us. So, you know, some don't like that terminology, but uh, some do use it. But not for justification or adoption or regeneration or anything like that. In our sanctification, God provides the will and the power. True. He provides the will and the power. He works in you both to do and to will, Paul says. Paul described his martyrdom as a drink offering. Yes, he says, I might be poured out like a drink offering here at the end of my life upon you know the sacrifice of your for your service and so forth. Paul was planning to send Timothy first to Philippi, followed by Epaphroditus. Just the opposite, yeah. yeah cool. He's gonna send Epaphroditus first, back with the letter. He'll carry the letter, and then Timothy will come later. Then Paul. <clears throat> Even Epaphroditus is described as someone who looks out for their own interests. No, we don't think so. Paul says everybody looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. and we're talking about who is that everyone. We think he's thinking of people <clears throat> and some of those people at Philippi, you remember who are like preaching the gospel not out of goodwill, you know but out of selfish ambition and things like that, you know. All right. We are looking at uh, this section, A Call to Sanctification, and uh, we're dealing with a, what's called the resumption of Paul's missionary report. Now, this resumption of the report about what he's going to do, what's next for him, these also serve as examples of the kind of humility, the kind of Christian character that he's been exhorting. In uh, beginning in chapter 1, verse 27, the duties of Christian citizenship, he talked about our conduct as Christians, how we should behave. Then he used the example of Christ as the model of servanthood and humility. And then now he's going to point to Timothy and Epaphronitus. And he pointed to Timothy last time as an example, Christian, as a model to follow in verses 219. Uh, 219- through 24. And that's where we left off last time. Now we want to look at Epaphroditus today in verses 25 through 30. Paul says, "...but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs." How soon Timothy and Paul himself may be able to visit the Philippians is uncertain, but the apostle considers it necessary to send Epaphroditus at once. Epaphroditus is mentioned in the New Testament only here and in 4.18, where Paul will later say, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God he should not be confused with Epaphras of Colossae there's another man in the New Testament named Epaphras but he's associated with the church at Colossae Um, he's mentioned in Colossians 1 7 you learned of it that is the gospel apparently Epaphras was the fellow who established or founded the church at Colossae remember Colossae is close to Ephesus And Paul was in Ephesus for three years. And during that three years, uh, a lot of churches were probably started. And he says to the Colossians, you learned the gospel from Epaphras. And he says in Colossians 4, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ, sends greetings. So Epaphras is with Paul in Rome. He's come there. Uh, In writing the letter to Philemon, remember this letter to Philemon is about this escaped slave, this man named Onesimus, who was a slave of Philemon. And he escaped, and Paul, he went to Rome, became a Christian apparently there. And Paul's sending him back to Philemon. Philemon is in Colossae. He's from Colossae. So we see Epaphras again, my fellow prisoner. So Epaphras uh, is with Paul, but it's not Epaphroditus. That's a, that's a different person here in, uh, that we're talking about here. A uh, similar name, but a different individual. Epaphroditus had brought the Philippians' gift to Paul. He is identified by the apostle in a series of glowing terms. So he's called here a brother. He's called a co-worker. He's called a fellow soldier. Paul doesn't use that term too much. He's, this, we're in the battle. We're fighting uh, the spiritual battle. He's a fellow soldier. This is a very high recommendation. In relation to the Philippians, he's called your messenger. This is actually the word apostle, apostolos, but the word apostle or apostolos has both a general term and a technical sense. In the technical sense, uh, apostles were created by Christ. They are people who are appointed by Christ to be his representative here on earth, and that's the 12, and that's people like Paul, there might be others, but we're not sure, but the term can be used of just a representative of churches or a representative of a church. Someone who represents, an official representative. So they don't translate an apostle because it would sound like he's one of Christ's apostles. But he's a representative of the church sent by them, their messenger. He's finally described as one to take care of the apostles' need. Uh, this take care of has the idea of someone engaged in a, a sacred service. It's, it's, a, it's an important service. It's a, it's a religious term, actually, a sacred service. So he was functioning on behalf of the Philippians, performing a sacred service that they could not serve at this present time. This is probably a reference to the financial gift, particularly, they brought to the apostle. Um. Some have speculated about the, this glowing endorse, endorsement. I mean they knew they knew Epaphroditus, they sent Epaphroditus. you know why this glowing description? you can understand this if they don't know him, if Paul is sending someone to someone to a church and they don't know who this guy is, Paul might write a letter, little recommendation. But why this glowing recommendation for someone they knew very will, very well? Uh, it may be that uh, Paul wants to make sure here, many think, that uh, he doesn't think the, the, uh, that Epaphroditus has failed in his mission because Paul is sending him back sort of prematurely. Apparently, Epaphroditus was sent to Paul to take care of him while he was there as a prisoner to help him and stay with him until you know some final resolution. But here all of a sudden, Epaphroditus... This sort of a, being a, his mission is being abandoned. Well, it's not really. Paul says, I'm sending him back for a purpose, and uh, so he gives him his very highest recommendation. He's in, he holds him in highest regard. He's, he's fulfilling the mission you sent him for, but I'm sending him back anyway for other reasons. Verse 26 tells us, For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Paul now gives two reasons why he thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus back to his home church at Philippi. One, his longing for all his friends, friends, one, and two, his distress over their concern for his welfare. After leaving Philippi, Epaphroditus had fallen sick, perhaps on the way or shortly after arriving in Rome. Somehow his friends at home had learned of this and we're naturally concerned about him. It's probable that since Epaphroditus was carrying a large sum of money, he was not traveling alone. When referring to an earlier gift, probably from the Philippian church, when Paul was at Corinth, he mentions that it was delivered by more than one person. He says, And when I was with you and needed something, he's talking to the Corinthians here, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, probably Philippi, the brothers who came supplied what I needed. So possibly one of the other travel one of the others traveling with Epaphroditus, reported back to the Philippian church. This would explain how Epaphroditus knew that the Philippians' church was aware of his illness. Later, we'll see that they're aware that he is ill, and so forth and so on. Uh, you heard he was ill. He says here, I'm sorry. So Epaphroditus did recover, as we'll see, from his illness. Uh, but uh, Paul knew that, the, that his Philippian friends were greatly concerned about him. And, of course, Epaphroditus was concerned about them. He longed for them, as we're told here. He was distressed that they were upset about you know, his situation. He may have even blamed himself or something. You know, we don't know. But anyway, that's a couple of reasons Paul gives. Verse 27, indeed, he was ill. And almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. In verse 27, Paul now confirms in writing what the Philippians had previously only heard, namely that Epaphroditus had indeed been sick. But they may not have known how serious his illness had been. So Paul informs them. That, he nearly, that it nearly proved fatal. When Epaphroditus took the letter to them, they would see that he was now safe and well, and this was due to God's mercy. For he had wonderfully uh, delivered their friend from death and restored him to health. One of the things that uh, uh, we're often reminded about people who study the ancient world is that uh, when you people spoke in this kind of language, it's the language of expecting people to die. When people got this ill in the ancient world, they usually died. People could you could get simple diseases, simple infections. You know, in the ancient world, there was no particular cure. You get a fever, a high fever, you're sick. You're expected to die. Basically, no antibiotics, nothing like that. And so, when people got that kind of sick, it was just normally expected that you were going to pass away. So this is, uh, in fact, some suggest here God miraculously healed him. We don't know. You know is it providential? Is it miraculous? But anyway, uh, God lavished his mercy, as Paul says here on Epaphroditus, and on Paul as well, by not adding to Paul's misery and Paul's sorrow that his colleague would die in this kind of situation. That would be even more difficult. Again, we're not told of his exact ailment, but according to verse 30, as we'll read, it was due to his work for the Lord, for his labors for the Lord. So perhaps it was due to the hazards he encountered on the way to Rome, or maybe something in Rome, we don't know. But Paul says it was due, it it happened to him on account of his labors in the Lord's service. Perhaps we should keep in mind here Paul's final words here he says God had mercy on him <clears throat> to spare me sorrow upon sorrow so remember we think many people think of this letter as the epistle of joy because the word joy or rejoice is used about 15 times here and some people call it the theme I don't think that's it but I said it's more like the mood but we can see here that joy is not the absence of sorrow. Paul can, talks about rejoicing throughout this epistle, but he still experiences sorrow here. He talks about this very clearly here. So sorrow doesn't mean the absence of joy, but the capacity to rejoice. Uh, I'm sorry, joy doesn't mean the absence of sorrow, but the capacity to rejoice uh, in the midst of it. Uh, joy is the fruit of the Spirit, we're told that's produced in us as we reflect on the goodness of God in our lives and the lives of others. And so even when sorrows come and difficulties and trials come, as we reflect on God's goodness to us and saving us and keeping us, that can give us joy in spite of the sorrows that are truly there. Verse 28, Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less, less anxiety. Therefore, because of Epaphroditus's illness from which he had now recovered and the Philippians' concern for their friend, Paul is sending him back to Philippi all the more eager. The twofold, two-fold purpose of this change of plans is so that the Philippians might be glad again when they saw Epaphroditus and that Paul's own sorrow would be lessened knowing that Epaphroditus was home again and in good health. Verse 29, So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him. Paul therefore exhorted the Philippians to welcome Epaphroditus with joy as fellow Christians should. He had fulfilled his mission with distinction and deserved an appropriate homecoming. So the Philippians were to give him, Paul says here, the due recognition that he deserved for his faithful and sacrificial service to Paul. In addition, they were to hold Epaphroditus and others like him in high esteem. Verse 30. Because he almost died for the work of the Lord, he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. The reason why a genuine welcome was deserved by Epaphroditus was twofold. First, he had been engaged in the work of Christ and had actually risked his life to accomplish it. Second, he had been trying by his labors to make up for the Philippians' absence from Paul And so they owed him their gratitude. The words to make up for the help you yourselves could not give do not have a negative connotation, as though some uh, some thought Paul, as though Paul was somehow annoyed with the Philippian friends and was criticizing them for failing in their service to him. Uh, The NIV has helped us here, and it doesn't translate it quite as harshly as some translations do it. Some translations translate here, to make up for your lack of service. That somehow you, it sounds pretty harsh, your lack of service. It like Paul is berating them or something like that. But that's not what he's really doing here. What's going on here uh, is that uh, Paul is, is suggesting that Epaphroditus had supplied uh, by his presence, what they couldn't supply because they were not present. That is, when you're present with somebody, you can help them in a way that you normally can't. In four fourteen through 18, Paul says the Philippians had done more than other churches for the apostle. I mean, he has this glowing statement about them. So we know he's not criticizing them here. He says, it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. He says, uh, I've received full payment, you know, that what Epaphroditus brought, I'm amply supplied, received from Aphroditus, they're a fragrant offering. So, Paul is not criticizing here, he's just simply saying that uh, the Philippians would have liked to been able to minister Paul personally, they couldn't, they're far away. They send their apostle, they send their representative, and he is fulfilling that function. The expression the same things which Paul will now write about, uh, I'm sorry, Uh, Uh, Epaphroditus' close call with death, uh, risk his life. Is to be explained as we noted in verse 27 in relation to his sickness. Furthermore, the illness was directly due to his Christian labors on behalf of Paul. Perhaps as I, it is as I mentioned before, it was because uh, he fell ill trying to get to Paul. The rigors of the travel—that it was very hazardous to travel—you know, in the ancient world—he may have become ill because of that. But he still came to Paul to minister to him in spite of being sick. Um, So he risked his life in the interest of the ministry for the work of Christ. That's a very commendable type of person. And Paul says we should honor people like that. Well, that finishes uh, that section, sort of. He now continues on with a warning against false teachers. He has some further remarks. He begins in chapter 3, verse 1, further, furthermore. I've got some further things I need to discuss with you. And uh, this is a warning against certain false teachers. Uh, and the warning is issued against what are called the Judaizers. And I'm. this is titled Judaizers as the Context for, for Theology. That is... Paul is going to explain some of his theology when he deals with these Judaizers. I said, Paul did not write a systematic treatment of his theology or doctrine. So it's very helpful to study the Bible systematically, doctrine by doctrine. That's what Master Plan for Life is all about. It's called Master Plan for Life, but it's really systematic theology. We call it in seminary or Bible school, you call it, Bible doctrine, systematic theology. It's a systematic treatment of all the teachings, all the doctrines, and they're divided into categories. You know, there's the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, Holy Spirit, angels, uh, so forth. Well, Paul didn't write that kind of book. Instead, he wrote what are called occasional letters. We've talked about that that these letters were occasional. Something happened in the life of the church. He had, to like this, in this particular case, the Philippian church. He wanted to write because we've mentioned some of the reasons, or the Corinthian church, or whatever. Uh, the book of Romans comes the closest to that kind of writing. Now, the Romans is also an occasional book, but the reason why it's so systematic theologically is because Paul did not establish that church. And he's coming to Rome, and he wants to use the church at Rome as the base for his operations. His home church used to be the church of Antioch, and he went out three missionary journeys from that church. But you want to be—you want your home church to—if <laughs> you pick a church to send you on as a missionary, you want that church to be solid. You want that church to believe what you believe. You want to be on the same page, you know. And so he's writing the book of Romans to the Romans, and he says, "Now listen." This he says twice, this is my gospel. This is this is the truth. I'm the Apostle Paul. The gospel of the Gentiles ain't nothing else, baby. This is it. <laughs> if you don't if you don't take this, you know, you're on the wrong track, you know. So that's why he's writing such a systematic theology in the book of Romans. He's just laying out doctrine after doctrine after doctrine. So there can't be any confusion. What we generally see in his letters Is Paul explaining his theology in response to various forms of false teaching he encounters in his ministry? That's what we usually see. So we go to certain chapters and we see the doctrine of justification, like Galatians. Galatians is all about one thing, justification, all the way through pretty much. He's explaining that in relation to people who have preaching a false gospel. We see here, that here, in chapter 3 of Philippians. The main opposition Paul faced in his ministry was from various Judaizing groups. These were professing Jewish Christians who argued that Gentiles should continue to observe the basic elements of the Mosaic Law, including circumcision, in order to be right with God. They seemed to follow Paul wherever he went. Arguments against these groups can be found in many of Paul's letters, So it is no surprise that we should find Paul taking them on here. In verses 2 and 3, he launches an attack on the Judaizers. This leads to an apparent boasting about his spiritual credentials prior to conversion in verses 4 through 6. So first of all, let's look at uh, Paul's warning here in verses 1 through 3 further my brothers and sisters rejoice in the lord it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it's a safeguard for you as paul moves forward what remains to be discussed with the philippians moves moves, moves toward what remains to be discussed he does not immediately start with the theological error but with the framework by which they are to evaluate these matters They are to rejoice in the Lord. Everything that comes down the pike, so to speak, in the Christian life, no matter how attractive it might appear, must be judged by how it affects our relationship to the Lord. This will serve as an antidote to the poison of the Judaizers, which obviously seems so attractive to the Philippians. The Philippians' joy is to be found in the Lord and not in the observance of the Mosaic Law. The expression, the same things, which Paul will now write about, refers to what follows in chapter 3, which he had previously communicated to the Philippians. Here, Paul expresses a mild apology for going over issues that he had certainly warned the Philippians about on numerous occasions. However, Paul feels he must do so again in order to be sure that they are safeguarded against this false doctrine. Let's look at that. Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. The verses that follow certainly identify these opponents with the Judaizers, those who dogged the trail of the apostle and endeavored to compel Gentile converts to submit to circumcision and other Jewish practices in order to be right with God. If you remember the book of Acts especially, uh, think about that uh, missionary journey, that first missionary journey when Paul goes into Galatia. Every place he goes, these Judaizers come behind him and stir up the crowds, you know, and, and they kick Paul out of town or you know try to stone him or, you know, things like that. So these Judaizers are following him wherever he goes and he's just always encountering this opposition so Paul warns the Philippians here watch out for these dangerous opponents and the rhetoric here in the original language is very very strong it's particularly strong, it's full of invective it's full of sarcasm the way he says it here in the original language the word watch out is actually repeated each time he says watch out for those dogs watch out for those dealers. watch out for those mutilators of the flesh he just repeats it very strongly and he uses uh, his rhetoric is he uses uh, uh, acid <coughs> the, the, the word the words that are here dogs evildoers and mutilators all begin with the same letter the same K Kappa in Greek so it's you know there's this assonance that this rings out as you look at this in the original language Paul is very very strong here the false teachers are given three insulting names to just designate them dogs. Evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. The English term "dog" was normally uh, applied insultingly to people considered worthless and vulgar. I don't, I don't mean the English term "dog," but I mean the term behind the English term "dog." Really, but the idea of dog. Uh, we think of dogs as wonderful little pets and lovely things, and you know, the internet is full of. That's all I see on Facebook is these dogs thing. They're cute, you know, they're all these little dogs. And they're doing our puppies are doing all these little things. That's not the way the ancient world thought about dogs. Uh, dogs uh, in Roman society were despised scavengers. Uh, so on the one hand, it's a very negative term. These are dogs. That's just kind of like the lowest form of life these people are. For the Jews, however, it also had a distinctly religious sense. It referred to Gentiles those people who being outside the covenant community were ritually unclean so it's a very negative kind of language here Um, the irony here is you know that the work of Christ has kind of reversed things it has reversed things because whereas the Gentiles were considered dogs they were unclean it's now the Jews are unclean (laughs) Uh, And don't forget that today. Uh, What is the religion of Judaism? It's idolatry, my friends. Jews are worshiping an idol. The true God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're not worshiping the God and Father of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jews are not worshiping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the true God. If you deny the Trinity, you're not worshiping the true God. Now we you know we appreciate them in many ways, they're looking at the old testament and all that. But they're they're not worshiping the true God, unfortunately. And these people aren't either. They're now the dogs. The Gentiles <laughs> are now the true people of God. The Gen- the Judaizers are now unclean. The word evildoers does not merely indicate sinners. Instead, Paul is refuting the Judaizers' claim that by doing the works of the law, they were doing good works. Remember Galatians 2.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, curses everyone does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. But genuine good works are done only by true believers. Remember Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the Judaizers are earthly minded false brothers whose teaching led to the works of the flesh. The third, third phrase here, mutilators of the flesh, is the most caustic description of all. It's a play on the word circumcision. The word circumcision in the original is peritome, and this is katomai. So you see how it sounds like peritomai. These people are not. Peritome, they're kathantame. They're not, they're not uh, circumcising, which means to cut around. They're cutting in pieces. So he's despising circumcision as a requirement for salvation by his language here. These Judaizers, with the apostle, argues in effect, do not deserve to be called the circumcision, but rather the mutilation. Paul's point is that when Jewish rituals are practiced in a spirit that contradicts the message of the gospel... These rituals lose their significance and become no better than pagan practices. Remember over in Galatians chapter 4, verses you know, 8 through 10 here, um, Paul says, um, "Sorry, formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. So Paul is writing to these Gentiles in Galatia and he's saying when you were unsaved, you didn't know the true God, you were slaves to these pagan idols, to uh, idols, to to the worship of the Roman idols and other uh, mystery religions and so forth, to those who were not really gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days, months, and seasons, and years. That's Judaism. So he's saying, you know, you've fallen back sort of into the same thing. You used to be a slave to this idolatry before, but now you're going back into Judaism which is a kind of a slavery too because you're trying to work your way toward salvation. So he's arguing here that these Gentile Christians of Galatia, these adoption of these Jewish ceremonies that the Judaizers are insisting upon them, uh, circumcision and keeping the law, is tantamount, tantamount to being re-enslaved, to enslaved all over again to their pre-Christian rituals. Uh, Here in the Philippians, Paul takes the Judaizers' greatest source of pride, circumcision, and interprets it in a way that says, you're not really the people of God anymore. You're just mutilators of the flesh. This circumcision is not necessary anymore. You know, it's not part of being the people of God anymore. Verse 3, For it is we who are the circumcision... We who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul now follows the warning of verse 2 with the reason, the four why the Philippians should heed that warning. We Christians, Jews and Gentiles together, are the real circumcision, not the Judaizers who insisted only on the physical right. Paul is referring here to the fact that all believers have received uh, circumcision of the heart. That's what he's talking about. Whether they are Jew or Gentile. So you remember he talks about this quite a bit. Um, A person is not a Jew, who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision (laughs) merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. Now, don't get carried away here. He's not saying you and I are really Jews now, ethnically Jews. But he's saying, you know, really Jews in the religious sense of the people of God. That these Jews who are, you know, not accepting their Messiah, they're not really the people of God. They're, 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 They're not following Christ. They're not the people of God. So we're the real Jews. We're the real people of God now. We're the we're the, we're the uh, spiritual family of God. Colossians two eleven. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And so this uh, this phrase is based upon uh, Deuteronomy. I mean it's this this idea of circumcision of the heart comes from the Old Testament. God talked about this. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him and with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The circumcision of the heart is what we call regeneration. And so what God is saying in the Old Testament is, yeah, I gave you this physical circumcision, but the problem with that is it doesn't guarantee salvation. Just because a Jew got circumcised, just because they're a member of the Abrahamic covenant doesn't mean that they are saved. It still takes faith in God, trust in God to be saved. In other words, if we talk about how people are saved, people are saved, Um, the basis of salvation is the death of Christ. So everybody who has ever been saved from Adam, was saved, Abraham, David, they were saved because Christ died for their sins on the cross. Now, of course, Christ hadn't died yet, but remember Romans says that God sort of saved them on credit. They were waiting for the time for Christ to die. So the basis, the foundation, the ground is the death of Christ. The means has always been faith. So, you know, Paul says that in Romans chapter 4. He talks about Abraham. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. So people in the Old Testament, if they were saved, they had to be saved by faith. Now, the content, that has been progressive. That is, God has, has added to that content over time. What did Adam believe? He believed that promise that someone was going to come to bruise the head of the serpent. You remember the Proto-Evangelium there in Genesis chapter 3? And then God adds material to that. Until we get to Christ, you know, we have the full revelation of the Son of God dying on the cross and so forth. So we know what we have to believe. So people in the Old Testament, they were saved if they had faith in God. They trusted the promise of God. They believed God. And we see that, you know, in the New Testament. Christ comes along, Jesus comes along at his birth. There's people in the temple, people who believe, they're believers. But not all Jews are automatically believers just because you're you're in the Abrahamic covenant and so forth. And so what's needed is regeneration, circumcision of the heart. So people in the Old Testament needed to be born again just like we are. And they called that circumcision of the heart. And so that's what Paul is saying here. You and I are the true circumcision, the true spiritual circumcision. We're we're the ones who have spiritual life because God has circumcised our hearts when he saved us. He has changed us. So Paul insists here that sinful humanity has no grounds for confidence before God because we are powerless to achieve righteousness before God. The true believer puts his trust and faith in Christ alone and that removes any grounds for human pride or boasting. We don't put any confidence in our own abilities in the flesh. Well, now we see Paul's mock boasting. Sorry, I should have put that. Let's look at that. Paul's mock boasting. Uh... One, one way to refute the argument of the Judaizers is for Paul to tell his own story. His Philippian friends know him well, so they should be strongly persuaded by Paul's own experience. If anyone had placed his confidence in strenuous observance of the law in order to gain God's favor, it was the great apostle. But he gave up trusting in his own righteousness as he says later in verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, comes from trying to observe the law. He gave up trusting in his own righteousness and came to regard all his attempts to obtain a righteous standing before God as garbage, as he says in verse 8. The path of the Judaizers is a dead end. Verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence... If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh I have more and I call this mock boasting because it's it's sort of fake boasting it's simulated boasting Paul feels compelled compel, he wants to give his experience you know if we're trusting in works hey man <laughs> I did it all I did everything but it's really fake boasting because it doesn't really do anything it doesn't prove anything but so it's mock or he he's mocking fun of these kind of credentials. It's simulated, fake boasting, we could call it. So though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence to the flesh, I have more. Verse 4 introduces Paul's boasting. The Judaizers who threatened the Philippians church no doubt appealed to their impressive Jewish credentials in support of their message. With considerable reluctance, Paul Paul felt pressured to remind the Philippians that his own background was second to none. If the Judaizers want to play the game of confidence in the flesh, Paul can play it better than they can. Paul's credentials, credentials with regard to Jewish identity, are better than theirs. Yet Paul will tell us shortly that these physical, these fleshly or physical privileges count for nothing spiritually. Remember, again, the reason Paul is doing this: he wants his friends to see that the path of works righteousness. Trying to be right with God by my good works is a dead end. Trying to be saved and right with God by keeping the law is pointless. It won't work. And so Paul gave up that pursuit of works righteousness when he trusted Christ alone for salvation. Verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. The Apostle Paul now lists seven advantages in which he could boast. The first four were inherited privileges, the last three personal achievements. Together they justify the I have more of verse four. Circumcised the eighth day sets Paul apart from pagans and from groups that may have performed circumcision in an invalid way. The claim to be of the nation of Israel distinguishes him from proselytes, that is, from converts to Judaism, sometimes perceived as second-class Jews. Paul next indicates that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, since even a true Israelite might belong to a disreputable tribe. The tribe of Benjamin stood high in Jewish estimation. It was the home of Jerusalem and the temple. This tribe alone had been faithful to David's Davidic throne at the time of the division of the kingdom. It had given the nation the first king, Saul, after whom Paul had been named by his parents. By calling himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Paul may have meant that he had no mixed parentage, but was a pure, uh, pure Jewish ancestry from both parents. But the phrase clearly indicates his linguistic and cultural upbringing which involved the Hebrew or Aramaic languages in distinction from that of the Hellenistic Jews who spoke Greek, even though he had been born in the Diaspora. What am I saying here? Remember, this comes up in Acts chapter 6, where there's a conflict in the early church among the Jews. Between those Jews who were from the area of Judea and Jerusalem, they spoke the Aramaic language, they had the temple... They observed ceremonies and sacrifices. But Jews had been dispersed throughout history from the time of the captivities, the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity. And that, you know, Paul finds them when he goes on his missionary journeys where he goes to these cities. He goes to the synagogue, he finds Jews. Jews there were not considered to be as observant. They couldn't offer sacrifices in the temple, you know, and so forth. They generally didn't speak Hebrew, Aramaic. They spoke Greek and so forth. So sometimes they were considered, uh, there was some question about them. So Paul says here, no. Uh, Even though I'm from the Diaspora, which means the dispersion of the Jews, Paul was born in Tarsus. Remember uh, Acts, uh, I think I have it here. I wrote Acts 22, 2 and 3 talks about how Paul came to Jerusalem probably as a very young child and studied with Gamaliel. So, man, he studied with the leading rabbi of the day. So there's no question about his credential. As an adult, Paul continues first, he, as, as an adult, Paul continues, first he chose a religious lifestyle that left no doubt with regard to his commitments. The particular approach he chose for his interpretation of the law was that of the Pharisees, which was widely perceived as the one most faithful to Scripture. So, among Jews, there were various sects or interpretations. Remember the Sadducees, Pharisees, we know we don't mention the New Testament Essenes who lived by the Dead Sea, Dead Sea Scrolls, and all that kind. Of, so, the very sex, the Pharisees were perceived as the ones who followed Scripture more faithfully. According to his testimony in, to the Galatians, Paul had advanced in Judaism far beyond his contemporaries. He says in Galatians one fourteen, "I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers." In the second place, Paul was not your everyday run-of-the-mill Pharisee. He proves the sincerity and intensity of his prior religious commitment by noting his zeal as a persecutor of the church. He says in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. The culmination of Paul's personal achievements is found in the last phrase, as far as righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul can hardly be claiming that he was sinless or even that prior to conversion he thought he was sinless in the sense of committing personal sin. Such a concept was quite foreign to Jewish theology or in Paul's own testimony in Romans 7, 5-11 indicates his awareness of personal sin. But Judaism from New Testament times forward, including today, has always emphasized sin as an actual transgression rather than inward corruption. The previous six descriptions of Paul's character refer to objective, verifiable claims. Paul is countering the Judaizers' claims by showing his credentials. Anyone could have checked the record and found that Paul had never been charged with transgressing the law. So outwardly, now you know, we know inwardly he was as sinful as anyone, but outwardly, he was a very moral, religious Pharisee. He didn't break any of the commandments. He kept the law, you know, outwardly. And so forth. We know there's much more to it than the outward, but that's what they apprise. That's what the Pharisees prize. That's what Jesus spoke about constantly, you know. Inside, they're really pretty corrupt, you know. They look good on the outside, but they're corrupt on the inside. So, this phrase, righteousness based on the law, describes an observable standard of conduct that is, right way of life prescribed by the Old Testament. And the word faultless describes an exemplary conforming to the Old Testament way of life and so Paul was quantifiably a, a, a faultless Pharisee in the, in the Pharisaic sense we might compare the rich young ruler here remember in Luke 18 when she, he comes and says what I got to do to inherit eternal life and the ruler says uh, and Jesus says you know keep all the commandments and he says I have <laughs> I've done it man <coughs> Well, there's more to that than just the outward, but he thinks he's looking thinking outwardly of that kind of thing. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, outwardly, I look perfect and all that. But that was just works righteousness, that was my own. And Paul will tell us next the failure of that and what's wrong with that. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together today. Help us and give us appreciation of the work of Christ in our lives, the righteousness that we have obtained by faith, that we as sinners have been counted to be right with you through the work of Christ. Thank you for this great truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.